American history is littered with sin and tragedy. Uh, by far, the greatest tragedy on the mark of our country's history is American slavery. <clears throat> it was uh, an atrocious, egregious, terrible stain. I love American history. I soak up American history books and biographies, and uh, to this day, I always finish a book on American history, and I scratch my head, and I say, how did that happen? How in the world did we allow that to take place for so long in this country? One thing I've noticed, there's kind of uh, two core concepts. Many things fed into that horrendous uh, institution in American history of slavery, but two really always stick out to me. The first was that we categorized those from Africa as subhuman. That was the language that was used in justifying the enduring nature of slavery in our country as well as throughout Europe. The language was is that since they are less than human, uh, we have any right to treat people from Africa however we are going to treat them, whatever we want to do. Uh, if we want to abuse, if we want to sell, if we, it, it, we're totally free to do that. And the justification is, is that they're less than human. Uh, the second thing that has perpetuated throughout the history of American slavery is that many people who felt uncomfortable with the institution of slavery had this feeling like they didn't want to be someone to speak into it. It was kind of like this. The conversation, if you look back at history, was like this. In many churches, in many family homes, in many conversations, there were people that were just uncomfortable with the yucky factor of the whole thing. But they kind of said, man, it's just kind of settled law. That was the language. We Let the politicians deal with that, and, and we'll just go on with our day. We don't need to kind of stick our noses where it doesn't belong, and I don't want to rust, ruffle any feathers. As we look back on American history, don't you wish you could go back into that time with what we know now, with the clarity we have, with the gospel we have, with the word of God that imputes dignity and value and all of that and personhood and, and the image of God on every single person from every country, no matter your color or your country or your creed, it's built in the word of God. Don't you wish you could go back and say, open your eyes. Speak up. Do something. This is not a right institution for us to have. Don't you wish you could go back and say those very things? How American history would be different if people like us would have spoken up back then. Today, the topic we're going to address is surrounding the life of the child in the womb. As many of you know, I don't even need to tell you that this is an incredibly divisive topic today. I mean, you know, state after state is changing their law. You know, there's, you know, all this conversation of what's going to happen at the federal level. And if you're just listening to the pundits talk, basically you're getting tweets that give you no actual depth to have this conversation in a meaningful way. <clears throat> One thing I know, I don't want to draw a connect relation between slavery and the conversation on abortion. Two totally different things. And I, I no way would I draw a direct connection. But I do want to look at those two principles today that continued the institution of slavery. Number one, that there are some people, a certain demographic, that are less than human. And how does that wrestle with the scriptures? And number two, that we just don't want to be those kind of people that ruffle feathers and stick our noses where it doesn't belong. Those principles 
are alive and well within the conversation around the life in the womb today. Now, I have to confess, before I even begin on this journey today, that this has been the most emotionally draining sermon I've ever prepared. I stand before you today exhausted. I did not sleep pretty much at all last night. Uh, I also stand before you today, I prayed more this week uh, than pretty much my entire ministry. I've preached a message on this topic before. Uh, I didn't hit it quite as directly as I'll be talking about it today. Uh, I want you to know as I go into this, this is not being done lightly. I'm your pastor. I want to shepherd you well, and this has been an emotional drain on me, as I believe it will be on you as well as we navigate this together as a family. By God's grace, he did something remarkable this week. He sent two women into my life, both of who have had abortions. Unexpectedly, these women came into my life this week, and that's just how God works. He, uh, you know, when, you, when he's doing something on your heart, he sends people your way. And I think one of the things that happened because of that is that uh, this conversation became deeply personal and emotional. Uh, seeing the conversation through the lens of women who have gone through this is a whole different conversation than just speaking about it from an academic, intellectual level. And so today, I want you to hear my lead foot. Here's my lead foot in the entire conversation. It's one word. Grace. Actually, let's make it three words from the book of John. Grace upon grace. For those in this room that have been through abortion, whether you're a, a woman who has had this and you've gone through the emotional burden and the tragedy that you have had to go through, I, I want you to hear first and foremost the message of grace upon grace. I'm going to give what normally is the high point of my sermon right up front, the gospel. I want you to hear grace. Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians says this. He goes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he goes through sin after sin after painful event in life after painful event in life. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, talking about all these horrors that take place in people's lives, he says this, and such were some of you. Such were some of you, thieves. Such were some of you, murderers. Such were some of you, adulterers. Such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And such was I, and such were you. But Jesus had his way with us. He washed us. You know, those who have been through the history of abortion and they get in a room like this and they hear a pastor about to open up the word of God and they're wondering, man, what's coming my way? Condemnation. Shame. Man, I'm just bottling this up. I hope I've preached enough sermons to you at this point that you know, church, that is not the conversation. The conversation is such were some of you, but God in his grace has poured out mercy to those who don't deserve it. Such were I. I've received grace upon grace in my life. In the covenant family of the church, we are a church that are sinners who have received grace. And what that does is that opens up vulnerability for us to expose the darkness of our past, to say, this is who I was. I've made tremendous mistakes and errors in my life, and there has been sin all through in my life, not greater or worse than anybody else's sin, but I've been washed but I've been justified and I stand in here today as a new person and that exposes a place for vulnerability in the church where shame meets its match. There's no more shame in the church. How many times have we preached that sermon? 
Over and over. This is my sermon every week. I got one sermon I give. It's that sinners have received grace and were changed because of it. In the covenant family of God, this must be the place where whatever our background is, we're free to say, hey, there's no shame here. Tell me your story because I'm made stronger when you tell me your story. Tell me your background and the pain you've been through and the decisions you've made in your life and all the things surrounding it that got you to that place because I'm made stronger when I see that in the grace of God in your life. Lead foot, grace upon grace. The gospel changes people like you and I who are tremendously sinful but have been sanctified, washed by Jesus Christ. My job is to teach the entire counsel of God. I gotta open up all God's words. That's one of the things we do at Park is we don't kind of cherry pick what are we gonna talk about, right? We, we go through all of God's word and we preach on the hard topics and everything as well. And so from time to time, I've gotta come across this in scripture and preach it, preach God's word appropriately. The Bible has a lot to say about the life of a child in a womb. It does. No Christian can escape these passages. We all sit underneath the same authoritative word of God and we've gotta figure out as a family, how do I navigate this conversation? And so today I am asking you for permission. If you're in this room and you're wondering what I'm about to say, I'm asking you for permission to go into a very uncomfortable place, to speak directly into very uncomfortable conversations that are taking place. And the reason I'm asking you for permission is that in order to talk about this, we have to be able to talk about it. I, it's hard for me to have even a kind of conversation about this without approaching it directly and kind of hitting the nail on the head. I need permission from you to go there because I want to equip you. God forbid as a church we're going around and hearing all these arguments that are taking place and, and we begin to believe these different arguments that are out there, but we've got to constantly go back to the Word of God and say, is God's Word shaping my worldview or is the news shaping my worldview? Is God's Word shaping the actual way I think about the moral decisions in my life or is the world and the secular arguments shaping the way I decide things? And what I want to do is I want to make sure as your pastor, we go first and foremost to the Word of God. We say, this shapes everything. I'm blinded by it. I can't see anything without looking through this lens of God. That's how we approach things. And so will you give me permission today to explore this conversation, to help equip you with the lead foot of grace and with love that we might be equipped to be able to enter into this dialogue together? Join me in a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, not my word, not my thoughts, but yours. So shall your word be that goes forth from your mouth that shall not return to you empty, but shall accomplish that which you purpose, that for which you sent it. Jesus, as your word is open today and as we go into this Holy Spirit-filled moment where we sit underneath the authority of your word, would you bring conviction and gentleness? Would you bring compassion and directness? Would you allow us to be shaped by your word and would shame and would fear be met by perfect love that says, not anymore. Jesus has had his way with us and we're totally new and we're underneath the word of God. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 139. What does the Bible say about this? I want you to be equipped and knowledgeable about this as Christians. Psalm 139, which I used in our call to worship today, we're going to be in verses 13 to 16. I'm going to read it for you. This is our primary passage, but then we'll go throughout Scripture. Verse 13. This is page 522 on your house Bibles. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let's break those few verses apart a little bit. First of all, he begins in verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. That language in the Hebrew, <coughs> inward parts, he's talking about the seat of the emotions. <coughs> he's not as much talking about the organs, <coughs> excuse me, but he's speaking about the seat of the emotions. Thank you, my love. This is my wife. She's my love. Not a random woman. The seat of the emotions and the affections. He's talking about the hidden part of the person where grief is experienced, where the conscience exists, and where deep spiritual distress can be felt. He's saying right out of the gate, you formed me. And notice how this whole context is about him forming that within the womb. That's verses 13 to 16. You formed my inward parts in the womb. You knit together my conscience and my soul and my emotions and my human experience in the womb. That's verse 13. You did all of that in the womb. You knitted me together. It's this idea that we are not just, you know, evolutionary accidents, random molecules floating around. Every human being is knitted together, molded. There's not one person that is alive today that was not deeply, perfectly crafted in the womb by the guiding hand of God. His work began in the womb in each of our lives. He navigated the whole conversation. Verse 14 and 15, I love this language. He says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. What's that getting at? He's talking about the holy factor. Holiness. Fearfully. When we approach the conversation of a fetus, of a child in a womb, this author cannot approach that in a light way. There's a holy factor that each of us is aware of, that something divine is taking place as this little person is being formed inside of his mother's womb. There's this reverence and awe of God that we look at this child being formed and we say, every time it's a miracle. Every time. How do you make those fingers like that, God? Out of a sperm and an egg coming together, you, you create a person every time. It's altogether too wonderful for me to even think of. There's this sense that he's lost in the holiness of it all. God forbid any human ever lose the holiness factor in this conversation. He does a miracle every time. And then verse 16 is just the, the very clear verse for us. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. That's the Hebrew word for embryo. Your eyes saw my substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Here's what he's saying. He says, you saw my embryo. He goes, and you saw those days, my embryonic days, even before even before I was an embryo, you saw them and you gave me life. You knew those days of my life, God. 
Even when I was just a little person without all my limbs formed yet, when I was just in the embryonic stage, you knew even those days of my life, God. Oh, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, cries the psalmist. Here in Psalm 139, we have the foundational verses for understanding life in the womb and the sanctity of life. That for the Christian who holds the authority of the Word of God, life begins at conception. This is what we call the sanctity of life. God has knitted us together in the womb. We are not just random accidental chances. We're not trying to figure out when that time begins. He begins it at conception. A number of other passages that support this and build on this concept that we find in Psalm 139. And you don't have to go there. We'll be flipping through a little bit. They'll come up right behind me. Jeremiah, verse 1-5. Chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This verse implies that God knows the unborn, those in the womb, in the same way that he knows a child or an adult. He has the same relationship with this human that he's formed. And that relationship with humanity does not begin once he's born, but once he's in the womb. He knows the child in the womb. The next one, Isaiah 49, verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Naming in Hebrew. That's a deeply personal moment. He's not actually talking about Isaiah the prophet's given name that his mother gave him. He's talking about this personal relationship where God looked at a person in the womb and says, stamped image of God, I know you. You named me in the womb. You you knew me in the womb. You knew everything about me in the womb. You knew my identity in the womb. That's where it all began. Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful at birth. Get this, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You want to try to get a better understanding of sin and the inheritance of sin that we have from Adam, go there. We have received sin and it is in us, baked into our very composition as people, not from the moment we're born, not from the moment we make our first intentional sinful moment, but at conception. Sinfulness is a human characteristic. That is what humans are. We are sinners. And he applies that to himself in the womb. Again, these are given the reality that God has spoken about the nature of us in the womb. These are qualities of humanity. What about the New Testament? What do we see in the New Testament? One of the most important verses for us is when uh, Mary, shortly after she finds out she's pregnant with Jesus, goes to visit Elizabeth. And she goes and visits another pregnant woman who's pregnant with John the Baptist at the time. And we know that Mary was only a few weeks pregnant at this moment. She literally had just found out she was pregnant from the angel. She makes her way, and it only takes about two weeks to get to where she was going. She's probably about three to four weeks pregnant at this point. And then, in, and then we read this. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That's John the Baptist. Leaped in her womb. Now what was taking place? So that we're not confused with what was actually taking place of why the baby in Elizabeth's womb was jumping, he clarifies for us. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Notice the child inside the womb is not just moving around as a non-human. It's experiencing human emotions. 
joy. Elizabeth was very pregnant at this point, probably five to six months in the second trimester. the, The child inside is experiencing emotions that humans experience. This is actually one of the realities of science that not many people knew about or talk about all that often. In 1973, when Roe v. Wade was passed in our country, we had very little scientific knowledge of what was taking place in the womb. We had the bodies of the children that would come out of the womb. We did, and so we could look at them and understand their development. They had all those pictures. But in terms of what was actually taking place with the living child in the womb, the technology simply really wasn't there. We couldn't look in and understand. But over the last 40 years, that's changed dramatically. We know very well what is taking place in the womb. It's incredible. The problem is is that science now allows us to look into the womb and understand the composition and what's actually happening in the mind and the heart of a little child in the womb. An article written in The Atlantic, in The Atlantic, last year titled, Science is Giving the Pro-Life Movement a Boost. That was the title in The Atlantic. We read this. The pro-life message has been for the last 40-something years that the fetus is a life. And it's a human life worthy of all the rights the rest of us have, she says. This is, from what I understand, not a Christian. I didn't get the feeling that she was a Christian writing this. She says, that's been more of an abstract concept until the last decade or so. But, she added, when you're seeing a baby sucking its thumb at 18 weeks, smiling, clapping, it becomes harder to square the idea that a 20-week-old, that unborn baby or fetus, is discardable. New science is instilling a sense of awe wonderfulness and fearfulness, a sense of awe that we never really had before at any point in human history. McGuire said, we didn't know any of this, referring to when Roe v. Wade was passed. In a separate article that was recently written in Psychology Today, again, not by a Christian from what I understand, a non-Christian recognizing the very same thing of what's taking place in the scientific community. In a very lengthy article, the writer explains, and she does her best to try to give the, the scientists that are discovering this, the off-ramp to say, yeah, but don't apply this towards the abortion conversation. Literally, the whole second half of the conversation is, this is what the science is, but the scientists don't want you to think you should be applying this to the abortion conversation. But here's what she says. They're recognizing all the ways that is happening with a child in the womb. They say, though research in fetal psychology focuses on the last trimester, when most abortions are illegal, the thought of a fetus dreaming Listening and responding to its mother's voice is sure to add new complexity to the debate. The new findings undoubtedly will strengthen the convictions of right to lifers, and they may shake the certainty of the pro-choice proponents who believe that mental life begins at birth. But church, we already knew all of this because John the Baptist leapt for joy in the mother's womb. Once again, the scientific community is playing catch-up with what we already know. Emotion, the ability to feel, the ability to understand, to form memory, to experience human emotions and, and awareness, mental faculty. It was told to us already. The child in the womb has all of that. But most importantly, and right out of that same passage, what do we read? We read that Jesus was also in the womb. This is so important, and this is perhaps the centerpiece of this entire conversation for the Christian. Jesus incarnated himself among humanity, and that did not begin at birth. Jesus experienced the full womb-to-tomb experience of humanity. He experienced it at all. 
When Jesus incarnated himself, he incarnated himself as an embryo into Mary's womb. He experienced all of humanity, all of the formation that takes place within the womb. He took on flesh. The reason this is so important is because the theology of Jesus being fully God and fully human, it must be used to help us understand all that Jesus went through in his human experience. We cannot remove humanness from the embryo or the fetus because that begins to deny the humanness of Jesus in what he did by taking on flesh. This is a mystery. This is a a magisterial mystery that Jesus incarnated himself into the womb. He did the whole thing. As followers of Christ, we have to regularly ask ourselves, is my worldview being shaped by Scripture or is it being shaped by the voices in the secular society around us that we hear? All throughout Christian history, every church, you will not find a pastor in history or a theologian that holds to a biblical authoritative worldview that makes any other argument than what I'm sharing with you today. You just won't find one. Because we're not forcing our view on Scripture, it is what Scripture teaches. Life begins at conception. There is a holiness. There is a reverence to the child in the womb. Throughout history, this has always been the church's stance. Now, how did culture get to where we are today? How how did we kind of veer off that track and get to where we are? I think there's a lot of routes of how this came to be, and I could trace many of them. One in particular has really stood out to me and I think is relevant for our conversation today. Today we hold to possibly the exact opposite of this teaching uh, in secular society today. We're told that it's not a life in the womb, and that has become the justification for the abortion conversation in our country. I think one of the reasons that happened is because if you trace back the conversation on sexuality in our country, you can trace this back to the 60s when the sexual revolution was really taking place in this country. And one of the things that happened is we kind of created a new God in society of casual sex. We said, hey, this is, we're going to remove all moral significance, all moral meaning, all intrinsic value to sexuality in itself. And so that became what was most important, casual sexuality. And what happens with casual sexuality is you've got to find a way to support that with your life and with the environment that you live in. So we're going to take all moral meaning, all intrinsic value out of sexuality, and we're just going to enjoy casual sex with no meaning to it. Well, what we're finding in psychology is that there are, that's just not possible. Uh, I mean, there's just so many things that are happening with people in our society today that have been broken because we've developed a casual sex mentality. But the biggest problem with trying to create an environment of casual sex, that is your God, is when a child is produced because of sexuality. A child comes with moral significance, with intrinsic value. But if you're holding to a worldview that says that sexuality has no intrinsic value and no moral meaning, well then you have a very big problem when a child rears its face into that environment. What do you do? I tried to create an environment for my life. Not me, I'm saying in this situation, I tried to create an environment for my life where casual sex was my God, but all of a sudden there's moral meaning and significance in this human that's been created. Such is the boundaries of the universe God's created. Every time you engage in sexual activity, you are taking the chance that a child will be created. A child that comes with moral meaning and significance. And so what do we do? We have to navigate this now. Now I, I want casual sex, but I also don't know what to do with this thing that has moral value. And so what we've done is we've returned to the olden days where we've created this God and we say, well, something's got to be sacrificed. 
And so what we do is we sacrifice our children. Sacrifice the child. If that comes with moral meaning, I can't have that in this casual sex environment I want. And so we sacrifice the child to maintain the God of casual sex. Church, this is history on repeat. This has been going on for many years. In the days of Jesus, in the Roman days, the Pax Romana, so to speak, there was a practice that was very similar to our modern-day practices of abortion called infant exposure. This is what would happen. Abortion was actually would happen in similar ways to how it happens now in Roman days, but not that often. What more than happened would infant exposure. In infant exposure, uh, you could give birth to a child, and if it was a gender you didn't want, or if it had an issue, uh, or if it was just, frankly, you just didn't want a child in your life, if it came with moral significance that you just weren't ready to take on, you could put that child in the alley on the street. Leave it. It's called exposing the child to the elements. And so in the Roman days, you'd be walking by and, oh, there's an infant dying on the street. There's an infant dying on the street. Go about your business. Go to work. Same as there might be a dog, you know, on the street, or there might be a cat on the street. There's an infant. And it was normal. It was normalized. Infant exposure is what they practice. It wasn't illegal. It wasn't condemned. It wasn't really that frowned upon, to be honest with you. If you read the quotes from the day, they just... It was just what you did because they didn't see the moral significance of the children. Infant exposure came to a screeching stop. You know why? Because of Christians. This is our history. You should be proud of this history. Christians. What Christians did is they looked at these infants and they said, "Um, well, that does not align with the word of God. And then they began adopting all the children. This is why infant exposure stopped. They picked up the children off the street, they brought them into their home, and they raised them as their children. People would have eight, nine kids in their home in Rome in that day. The Christians, they ended it almost overnight. It just came to a screeching stop. It wasn't because the Romans stopped leaving kids on the street. (laughs) It was because the Christians adopted them all. That's how infant exposure ended. And you know what happened? Eventually, the church, the church made everyone feel so guilty If you read the quotes, the quotes are, I just don't know what to do with these Christians. I want to hate them, but they love our people more than we love our people. That's the quotes. I'm trying to kill all these Christians, but it kind of is hurting myself because they're loving our own people. That's that's actual history. That's how infant exposure stopped. Christians adopted. I'm working right now diligently with a team of folks from Park Community Church. Many of you have been helping with this project to develop an adoption fund at Park. An adoption fund. You know why? Because Park, if we're going to have a voice in this conversation, one of our lead foot and feet need to be adoption. It needs to be adoption. That has been our marching orders from the very beginning. And what the adoption fund is going to do is it's going to say, if you're a Park Community Church, we don't want finances to be a hindrance to you adopting a child. So you know what? Your church is getting behind you. We're going to find a way to do this. We're covering this in prayer. We've got money put aside for this. We're writing bylaws for it as we speak. We're getting it all in order. Why? Because we need our lead foot to be love and grace. That's the lead foot. What's the problem? The problem is, or what's the answer to the problem? The church. That's the answer. That's the answer. Let the law catch up to what the church does. They'll catch up. When they see the church leading in this way, they'll do exactly what the Romans did. Eventually, they're going to look in on the church and say, we want to hate them. But their lead foot, pretty compelling. And they're taking care of everybody. That's the church's history, and that's what I want us to step into. I invite you to pray along with this with me. There's a lot to figure out on this adoption fund, but church, it is so important. Why? Because God's adopted us into his family. 
How many times we come back to the language of adoption. Jesus Christ died on the cross that you would be adopted into his family. When we had no family to call our own, when we were on our own, when we were exposed to all the elements, so to speak, when we were cut off from God's family and we were dying on the side, you know what God did for us? He stepped in in the person of Jesus Christ and he died on the cross, shedding his blood, sacrificing all the pleasures he had in heaven. He experienced death so that we might be adopted into God's family. He adopted us. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted. Don't ever forget that. You were an orphan and Jesus adopted you into the family. Now you get all the rights of a son or a daughter of the kingdom. We sang that this morning, adopted as orphans into your family. No longer an orphan. Did you know Jesus has adopted you? If you believe that, that'll start changing your language in this conversation. Not every person is called to adoption. I know that, but many are. And everyone's called to help in this conversation. What's your role? Now, I'm not done. I want to keep going through this. There are a number of conversations and compelling arguments that are being made against everything I just shared. And you've probably heard most of them. I want to go through them directly with you. Why? I want to equip you. I I don't want you to be wandering in the wilderness in this conversation. I want you to feel like you can stand on solid ground and hear an argument that's contradictory to what this says and say, okay, I've thought through this. I can navigate this argument. And so once again, I'm asking for permission. This is very uncomfortable for me. I'm a people pleaser. It's bad. But I need to go here with you. I want to help you and help me. Here's an argument that oftentimes gets said. A woman has the right to do with her own body whatever she chooses. You've heard that, right? Many of you might make that argument in case and hold to that. First of all, I want to first start with love and compassion and grace. I understand why you would feel that, ladies. Because we have a grotesque history in humanity of men abusing and oppressing women. And I can totally understand why you would be here today saying, how dare anyone tell me what I can do with my body? There has been so much pain for men telling me what I can do with my body. How dare anybody do that? Man, I'm telling you, I feel that. And church, the conversation is way bigger than just abortion when it comes to how we treat women and how the church elevates women and men sacrifice their lives for women just as Jesus sacrificed himself for the church. We must do that, and I understand. Hear the lead foot, love, grace. I hear that. I do. But let's talk about that conversation. Typically, people mean one of two things, and I think a lot of people who use that argument don't actually know what they're actually saying. They mean one of two very different arguments when they say that it's my body. On the one hand, some people mean the fetus, the child in my womb, is literally my body. It's not another body, it's my body. The body inside of me is me. It's kind of like a wart or a blister. It's just part of me. That's what some people mean when they say that. Other people mean... I know it's a different body inside of me, but ultimately the decision to have an abortion impacts my body. See those two different arguments? And so as we're navigating this, one of the conversations you can have is, what do you mean by that? Can you help me understand what you're saying? Those are two different arguments, and I want to respond to both of them. Let's respond with the first one that says that the child growing inside the body is the woman's body. Well, scripturally, the child inside the woman is not the woman's body. Biblically, that must be our worldview. It's not. We've already seen that personhood is given to that child through Scripture. But that is also scientifically what we see. We're not just off on a limb saying that. Scientifically, it's also not the woman's body in any real sense. 
The child has its own heart, its own lungs, its own brain, its own unique DNA, its own emotions, its own ability to feel pain, its own thinking, its own soul, its own gender. It's genetically distinct. To the fetus, to compare the fetus to a wart is simply just not true. That's not factual. It's a false argument. How about the other one where we say, yes, but it impacts my body because you are the one as a woman who's giving birth to this child. In some ways, that's very true. It does impact your body. But let's respond to that. Does the government or does anyone have the right to tell anybody else what they can or cannot do with their body? Now, I understand that being pregnant is a very different thing than just any other law. It's very, very different. It's very unique. But that is what all moral meaning is, right? That's what all laws are. This is why we have laws like you can't drink and drive, right? That, that's putting a, hint, a, a stop on what we can do with our bodies. We can't drink and drive. Why? Because that puts other lives in danger when you drink and drive. And because we hold to the sanctity of life and because we hold to that we don't take innocent life, we stop people from doing some of the things they would want to do with their own bodies. You can't take hard drugs in public, right? <laughs> or in private either. We stop you from doing that if that's something you want to do. And there are laws in place because we don't want you to hurt yourself and we don't want you to hurt other people. So this argument is actually not consistent. I understand very clearly that it's very unique when it comes to a woman's body because that's a very mysterious and holy thing for a woman to hold a child in her body. And yet, laws are in place and moral significance is given when it comes to an innocent life and what we can do to that innocent life. Number two, the other argument that we oftentimes hear is this. If abortion becomes illegal, we will return to the dangerous days of back alley abortions. Have you heard that? This I also recognize, and I want to lead my foot with love and grace. I, I cannot imagine the pain and the fear of a young woman who has an unplanned pregnancy, looking at her life, looking at all the stresses, and feeling alone in the midst of that. And the decision she might make and has made in history to end the, child, the life of the child. And not only that, but then living with that. Talking with women who have gone through abortions. Just living with the hardness of that decision. The tears that came with that decision. I feel that. And my lead foot is love. I, I get that. I want to step in and help as much as I can. And that's what I think I'm doing today. But once again, this argument is inconsistent. Because... That is exactly where all crime happens, in back alleys. When we talk about the sanctity of life and the innocence of life, when you put laws to protect people, when someone's going to break that law, it happens in back alleys. That's where it takes place. To, to, say, to make this argument is a bit like saying, well, since murder is going to happen, we, we should make it safe and legal, right? Do it in a way that, is, that isn't going to, you know, be so kind of dirty and in the back. Well, no, we wouldn't make that argument. And once we hold to the sanctity of life, which is what the biblical worldview stands for, we have to be consistent in this and understand that that is where crime takes place. And so what do we do as a church? Let me tell you a couple of things we do. Number one, I met an organization recently called CARIS. I want you all to know about this organization, C-A-R-I-S, CARIS. Incredible organization, actually founded by someone who used to go to park. Caris helps women who have unplanned pregnancies, who are scared and fearful. And they're Christian. They will never recommend an abortion or point people to where they can get abortion. That's as easy to find as, you know, you just need to go down the street and you can find that. But they help thousands of women each year 
who are scared out of their mind with counseling, with medical help, with care. They share Jesus with women and let them know about the love of the church and point them to healthy churches where they're not going to experience shame, where they're not going to experience guilt upon guilt, where they're experience grace upon grace. Karis is an amazing partner of ours. And you know what even they do? Here's what they do. If they begin counseling a woman who's scared out of her mind, and they begin coaching her and giving her advice, and if that woman then leaves to go have an abortion, you know what they do next? They then follow up with the woman and continue to care for her because they know that women who have an abortion experience tremendous pain over a long period of time and they give care and counsel and they don't stop loving on that woman. Over the long haul, the work they do is phenomenal. It's amazing. We have to know these partners and who's doing this work in the city and use that as an example. Women who are scared, who are alone. Church, if you want to know what you can do, get to know people. One in four women in our city are going to go through an abortion. Get to be that person who is so known and caring and not judgmental in people's lives that they're going to open up to you and share with you when they're hurt and scared that you as a Christian might judge them. God forbid, God forbid that we assume to know everything. We stand on the word of God. We recognize this. We always point people towards truth. But then we also love people in such a powerful way that they will open up to us with their darkest secrets around our dinner table. Is that what you're known for, Christian? Do the people in your lives, are they afraid that if they actually open up to you about what really is going on, that you're going to judge and cast shame? Or are you going to walk through them and counsel them the way your church has with the sins you've made in your life as well? Church, this has got to be our lead foot. It's got to be love. You've got to get to know people well enough that they will open up to you with these decisions. And then, don't give them the easy road off. Bring them to Jesus. Let them see the love of Jesus because that's the only thing that heals. We don't believe anything else can heal. Jesus heals and we point them towards Christ. And number two, church, be prepared. I've tried to equip you today. I know you've got questions. Come meet me in the art room after service today. I want to keep this conversation going. And if you're angry with me, be in conversation with me. It's okay. I can take that. Be prepared, though. Our governor, J.B. Pritzker, right now has a bill that is set to be voted on. It's in subcommittees as we speak that will make Illinois the most abortion-friendly state in the country. It is expected to be passed this week. The most recent legislation is that because it's stuck in subcommittees, they're going to add it on as an addendum to another bill so it can slip through without people recognizing what just took place. That's happening this week. If Illinois becomes the most abortion-friendly state in the country, what, what's happening is they're going to make late third-term abortions on demand for any reason, including emotional distress, which is any reason. I've read the law. I've read the bill. That's what it says. If that happens, Chicago will be the leading third-term abortion city in the country. It will be on your doorstep. I want you to be equipped. This is not a fear message. This is, we're Christians. In today's day, let's stand confidently on the word of God. Lead by love. Step in and not repeat the mistakes of our forefathers long ago who said, you know what? I just don't want to stick my nose and I don't know what to do, so I'll just stay quiet. Church, we cannot be quiet. We must not be quiet. Will you join me in prayer? Jesus, we adore you. Conversations like these are highly uncomfortable. And yet, God, you invite us as a church to talk about uncomfortable things because your word has given authority and clarity. 
God, anything of me that has been of me and not of you, would you please make people forget? Just throw it away. But what's of you and what's powerfully from you, God? Would you bring conviction? And God, would you bring a unity in this church? Would we stand united powerfully as a family, as a covenant community, stepping in, loving people powerfully, not pouring shame, not pouring judgment, pouring love, pouring grace, and standing up for the most vulnerable among us, those in the womb. Jesus, please give us grace and help. We'll fumble it so many times if you leave us on our own, but as you lead us, man, we have all the hope in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.